Welcome to the Saint and Sinner podcast. This is a reformed podcast to help weary sinners find their rest in Christ. My name's Brian. I'm joined today by my co-host, Daniel. And today we are going to be speaking about justification, the heartbeat of the Reformation. Martin Luther said, justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. So this is an important doctrine. Yeah, and so the battle of the Protestant Reformation was waged over this primary question. How does a sinful person get right with a just God? Because you know, where, where there is sin, there we find the holy wrath of God. And so how can me, how can you, a sinner, uh, be in right standing with a God like that, a God who is holy, holy, holy? And really this question plagued the young Martin Luther. And he breathed in the, the late medieval world. And that medieval world taught Luther that you become righteous by infused grace and therefore the works that you accomplish. And these works, that, well, they often express themselves in the sacramental system, and particularly the sacraments of penance. That's where you would go into to the priest and confess all of your sins. What this did was actually trouble Martin Luther even more, because the more he confessed, the more he realized he had more to confess, and it created a bit of a problem for him. And it's even said that the priest eventually said, look, just go away, Martin, and sin so that you have something worth confessing. I think what's interesting is, is at the time of Luther's day, the medieval theology would teach that there is a distinction between actual grace and habitual grace. So actual grace gave forgiveness to sins provided they were confessed, but habitual grace changed a person deeper down in their very being, and it overcame the problem of original sin. So with this understanding, a man had two requirements to be righteous before God. First, he had to avoid committing sins through habitual grace. And then second, confess every sin committed to receive forgiveness by actual grace. It was a damning theology. And this means that Martin Luther was taking sins seriously, and he was taking God seriously. He knew that God was perfectly righteous, and, and God couldn't look on evil. And Luther knew in himself that he could never get himself righteous by what he did. And all of this was further complicated by indulgences and the treasury of merits. That is, the Roman church believed that the good works of the perfect saints went into this heavenly bank account. And so someone like Mary, they would say, was a perfect saint, and she did works that were beyond her perfection. And all of those extra good works went into this, this bank account, and you could draw from them uh, to, to top up your own righteousness. And so you do that through indulgences, and that, and that is things like bowing down to icons, uh, bowing down to bones of dead saints, and even buying tickets to heaven from the Pope during Luther's Day famously. But this actually never gave any certainty or assurance. And the question stuck for Luther, how can I, a sinner, be right with a holy God? And so this went on, and Luther never had assurance that he was just before God. Until he had that, that breakthrough, it, it was sometime after posting the 95 Theses. And that was when Luther was teaching on Romans. And he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, but the just shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went on for Luther. He realized that the righteousness of God wasn't the righteous character of God by which he judges guilty sinners. But he realized that it was God's passive righteousness that he gives to sinners by faith. And really, this was the match that lit up Western civilization. It changed history, church history, and world history. It was a rediscovery of justification by faith alone. And so Luther realized that to be justified, 
is to be declared righteous before the tribunal of God. A justification doesn't involve a moral transformation, but change to our legal status. In our justification, God credits the perfect law-keeping of Jesus to sinners and transfers our guilt and penalty to him. And that means it's a one-way work. I don't add anything to my justification. It's what God gives me through the merits of Jesus Christ. And so salvation and nothing less is at stake, which is why when Calvin was speaking to uh, Cardinal Sadaletto, he said, sola fide, justification by faith alone, is the first and primary subject of controversy between us and you. So what is justification? And I think a helpful definition comes from Calvin. He writes, justified by faith is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it, appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's good. Really helpful. Yes, and so and so what, what Calvin is saying there is before the judgment seat of God, I am righteous in Christ. And it's not by anything that I've done. It's not by works. It's by faith alone. And that means that faith is a not work. It's the thing I do when I don't do anything. It's the empty hand that grasps all that Christ is. Now, I think it's helpful for us to, to share that justification by faith alone wasn't ultimately new to Luther. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk, and so he drew a lot from the fourth century father. Um, Augustine taught that God's grace is the covering for our sins. Augustine taught that Christ has done the work for us and it's received by faith. Now, that doesn't mean that Augustine got it all right. You know, he, he was a bit funny on, on justification, particularly the word justification because of the Latin word, justificare, uh, uh, which meant to make one righteous. And so in one sense, it wasn't really his fault because he didn't have, he couldn't read the Greek or he didn't have access to it. He was reading the Latin. But there was uh, the seed of justification was there in the early days. And so let, let me read a couple of quotes from the early church. The first one is Clement of Rome. This is what Clement says. He says, And we Christians, too, being called by his willing Christ, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom, or understanding, or godliness, or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which, from the beginning, Almighty God has justified all men, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Jerome, uh, on his commentary on Romans 10 verse 3, said, God justifies by faith alone. And so what was the problem? I think the problem was, it was sometime during the medieval period, where there was a confusion of what it means to be righteous. And I think basically what happened was Aristotle's philosophy began to creep into the church. And so the virtue we have within us is something we nurture on our own and by our own strength. Uh, we need to do what's within us became the the cry of the medieval church. And so God may start our justification in baptism, but then we need to top that up. We need to work at it. And so the doctrine of justification morphed into this idea of merit. We need to achieve a level of merit in order to guarantee our place in heaven. And that's why Luther came along and blew the whole system up. Now, he wasn't being clever. No. He just went back to the Bible and opening the scriptures and reading things like Romans 5 verse 1, where Paul says, since we've been justified by faith, we have, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that it's it's past tense. It's done. We have been justified. It's not something that God is working in us continually. So how are we justified in God? How do we receive this justification that Luther so vividly championed throughout the Reformation? Well, we talk about a doctrine of imputation. Now, this is a doctrine that tells us there is an alien righteousness outside of ourselves that is given to us, provided to us, as if it were our own. It covers us. It is united to us. It becomes a part of who we are. So that God looks at us and sees us as righteous, not because we ourselves are righteous, but because Christ is, and he provides this righteousness to us by faith. Yeah, so the doctrine of imputation, just to piggyback off what, what you're saying there, Brian, teaches that whilst, while Adam's sin is imputed to us because he's our federal head, uh, God imputes the perfect obedience of Christ to those who are united to him by faith. So imputation isn't a modern invention, as the, the new perspective on Paul those guys say, they say, you know, oh, this is something that, that Luther came up with. It's new and, and foreign to the Bible. But actually, it's based on Old Testament ideas. So you, you might think of the Day of Atonement, uh, where the sins of the people are transferred to the scapegoat. Or you could open up Isaiah 53 and see that the one man will justify the many. And so it provides even clearer foundations for the doctrine. And, and then the New Testament builds upon it. And I think in the New Testament, we find three things, don't we? Particularly in, in Romans 4 and 5. And that is Adam's sin has been imputed to all of humanity since Genesis 3. Our sin has been imputed to Christ on the cross. And Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to us. And this truth really is, is, is a balm to the Christian who fears standing in the presence of a holy God wearing nothing but sin-stained garments. We say, no, we, do, we don't wear that. We wear the righteousness, Christ. I think the distinction between what we're talking about is made clear when we look at the Roman Catholic Church and their view of how we receive righteousness. Now, the Catholic understanding of justification held that the righteousness of God was imparted to or infused into the believer. And because of this infusion, the believer can now actively do good and then be justified by their own works. But justification does not mean that God heals a person and makes them better in order that they might become justified, but that God is declaring or reckoning an individual righteous apart from good works. This declaration takes place even though the individual himself is not righteous. God does this on the basis of another's righteousness, which is alien to the believer. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's given to us. By faith alone, we are tied together with Jesus. Yeah, so that means that God justifies the ungodly, not the, not the good person. And again, it's another contrast with the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? That teaches that, that God justifies sinners on the basis of inherent rather than imputed righteousness. In other words, a person must actually be holy in order to receive the verdict of righteous before the divine judgment seat. Yeah, that flies in the face of what Paul says in Romans 4 verse 5, where he says that God justifies the ungodly. Uh, the ungodly person can only receive the verdict of righteous by a gracious imputation. There's nothing in me that warrants any righteousness because I'm not righteousness. I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm full of sin. And so God imputes the righteousness of Christ to me so I can stand in his sight. Now, who could stand before God in themselves? If there's any measure of me that goes into the equation, how can I pass the test? 
our God in heaven is perfect. He's a perfect judge and he executes his justice in every single measure. There's nothing that will remain hidden. Every stone will be overturned. He will judge the inner hearts of all men. He will judge our thoughts. He will judge our actions and everything that is found lacking will be punished. And so here's the question. If he does not provide a perfect righteousness, if we are not cleansed in full by receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and there's something that you have to do to add to this or to improve upon this, how can that thing stand before that holy God? Because all you can bring to the table are good works stained by sin. I mean, what does the scripture say? Our good works are as filthy rags to the Lord. And this is because there is nothing that we do that isn't touched by the sinful of our hearts. And the only answer is to be justified by the righteousness of another, because we have none of our own. So this brings us into the topic of the ground of our justification. So we mentioned throughout our conversation how we are tied together with Christ by union, and through that union, we receive his righteousness. But the ground of justification is the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, the active obedience of Christ is his fulfilling of all righteousness. It's where he upheld the law in perfection, where he obeyed the Father without fail in every single measure. He was righteous. But his passive obedience is the sufferings that he has received on our behalf. And this is not just about the cross. This is where it, it culminates. This is the climax of passive obedience. But it's throughout his entire life as he lived in a broken and fallen world, suffering, feeling broken, feeling lonely, feeling the curses of the fall. And then at the climax, he goes to the cross and passively suffers for our sins and takes all of our guilt upon himself. And also in the cross, we see his active obedience as he obeys the Father again, giving himself up as a worthy sacrifice for all the people that the Father has given him. So this active and passive obedience of Christ is given to us as if it were our own. And so in every measure of our being, we are made perfect because we receive all that Christ has accomplished. Yeah, and I, I think the active obedience of Christ has come under a bit of scrutiny in, in recent times. And so some people will say things like, well, as long as I'm sinless, I can stand before God. Why would I need the righteousness of Christ given to me or imputed to me? But if you just, if you just look at, at Psalm 15 as an example, who gets to stand in God's hill? Who can approach the Lord? It doesn't say the one who is sinless and hasn't done anything bad. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. As there seems to be an assumption that who, who is the one that gets to, to be where God is? Who gets to dwell with him? The person not only who is sinless, but who is positively righteous. And that means that justification is far more than pardon. Yeah, so pardon will be like being in a, in, a, in a law court. And the judge says, you're not guilty, and so go away. Justification is a father saying, you're righteous, now come in. You're welcome into my love and into my presence. And that means justification has massive implications for church life. It means I don't go to church to pay my weekly religion tax so that God gets off of my back. I don't come to get my moral card stamped and approved. I come for one reason, 
Christ has welcomed me. And think about how much that changes church life. It feels like a refreshing pool on a hot summer's day. Exhausted sinners come to find the welcome of Jesus Christ through his righteousness. I think some Christians out there feel like their day-to-day is spent fending off the angry judge in the sky and that he is angry and upset with them and disappointed with them. And so they're constantly trying to appease that God by re-sacrificing themselves in terms of their spiritual disciplines or good works, their obedience to the law. And they think that this will somehow get that God off their back. Now, the problem here is you either have all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ or you have you. And you are not something that is worth standing on. Jesus Christ is the only righteousness that matters. And if he gives his righteousness, it is a perfect one. It completely covers every failure within yourself. He cannot give it in parts. He cannot give this righteousness in a terms of, I'll provide half of it, and then you will be partially cleansed. No, he either gives it in full or you receive nothing. So. How do we receive this justification? Well, certainly not by anything that we do. It's by our faith alone. Now, what is faith? Well, uh, faith faith isn't this airy-fairy thing. And so, you know, if, if you're a Luton Town supporter, you might have faith that you're not going to get relegated from the Premier League. <laughs> but you might have faith in that. It's not an unshakable faith. It's not an unflinching faith. It's a, it's a faith that's shaky. It doesn't have any solid ground or foundation. And so that, that's not what we mean by faith. The reformers said that faith is three things. First of all, faith is knowledge. And so I have a knowledge, not just of truth in general, but truth in the gospel. Now, the gospel is what, what Christ has done to save sinners. And so it, faith is when I, okay, I, in my head, I say, okay, I have a knowledge of what God has done. He has sent his son to live the perfect life I should have lived and to die the death that I deserve to die. I know this in my head. That's the first step of faith. That then leads into the second step, which is assent. That's when I go, I know this in my head. Assenting is saying, I believe this is true. I believe that Jesus was a real person, did live a perfect life. He was sinless. He did die on the cross for sinners. That's still not enough, is it, to say that Jesus died for sinners? I then need to trust that myself and, and grasp Christ and trust in him alone for salvation. And I guess what that looks like is, it's a really helpful question, I think, that on the day of judgment, if God was to say to me, why should I let you into my heaven? Trust in Christ is me saying, well, not because of anything that I've done. I trust only in the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ. And so faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. Absolutely. And I think one of the things we see in Christians today is this idea of, well, God should let me in because I believed and worked. I believed and did this. I believed and was part of this organization or that. And the problem here is, is we're putting the ball back in our court. You know, justification by faith either receives all of Christ or it doesn't. And Jesus Christ is our only hope. How this might look in a believer's life is they see the sinfulness that exists in themselves. They see the law's demands and how short they fall. And they realize there's hopelessness here. There's hopelessness in me. I cannot do it. I need to look elsewhere. And then the declaration of good news comes through the form of the gospel. 
where Jesus Christ has provided for us on the cross, where he lived perfectly in our place, where we fail, and on the cross, he receives the weight of God's wrath in our place. And so I acknowledge that truth. I hear that truth. I understand the clarity of the message. And yet I then turn and say, that is for me. I take hold of Christ in recognition and faith that what he has accomplished was for me. Christ is mine and I am his. Faith takes hold of him. And that's what is the the condition of justification. Nothing else that you can do but a simple faith in Christ. Now, why do I say the word simple faith? Because I think in Christian circles, we can sometimes puff up the idea of faith (laughs) and say that your faith needs to be this massive thing that nothing can come against it. And it's this strong faith that can stand the test of time, never will be shaken. It's extreme. You, you don't ever doubt anything. It's just big. And that's not really proper understanding of faith. See, in Christian circles and especially reform circles, faith was always understood as mustard seed. a mustard seed, a simplest faith. So when somebody asks me, well, how much faith do I need to be justified? Any, Mm. any faith will justify you. And and this is massive because it means on my deathbed. Let's let's imagine that that I'm on my deathbed. There's there's tubes sticking out everywhere. I'm shaky and nervous. The doctor said I've only got a few minutes to live. Do I want the pastor coming over to me and saying, how's your faith? How big's your faith, Daniel? (laughs) No. I I want him to come over and say, Jesus loves you. Going to be okay. And so, so that, that, that question of how big is your faith can often riddle the believer with more anxiety rather than comfort and hope, rather than, again, holding into Christ. And so what ends up happening is we end up having faith in our faith. And we start looking in and, okay, wh- where's my faith? How big is my faith? That, that's the opposite of what faith is. Faith is a looking out unto Christ. As Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Let's big that up. Take 100 looks at Christ. <laughs> That that's what your faith links you to. So it's not the it's not the instrument faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves. I love D. A. Carson. I remember him once teaching on Exodus, and he said, "You know, picture the Jewish men on the night of Passover. One of them is is saying, I 'I'm so confident. You know, I've put the blood there on the door. I'm so confident. This is really exciting.' He says, well, how, how do you feel, Justin? <laughs> and Justin's a really Jewish name, isn't it? And Justin says." I'm really, really anxious. I feel so, so scared. And then the other Jew says, well, have you put the blood on the door? And Justin replies, well, yeah, of course I've put the blood on the door, but I'm really, really scared. Now, the angel of death passes by that night. Which one of them lost their lives? None of them is the answer. Because their, their salvation was never based on the bigness of their faith. It's always the object of their faith that saves. Now, Something that we something that we always say within our conversations is anytime you are looking at your security and your assurance, if you're putting the lens back on yourself and focusing on anything in you, I'm probably going to tell you you need to look somewhere else. Whether you're looking at your own good works or obedience, whether you're looking at your sanctification, or you're looking at your own faith and the measure of it. Anytime you are fixated on yourself and how that's leading you to being unassured of your faith, being unassured of your salvation, I'm going to say you're probably focusing in the wrong place. You need to look to Christ. Faith takes hold of him, not of yourself. 
Yeah, and so and so some people try to redefine faith. That, that's that just continually happens in church history, and so more recently, the new perspective on Paul. They've tried to redefine faith as obedience, or basically as my faithfulness. So faith becomes faithfulness. And so God justifies me by my faithfulness. It's hard to see how that doesn't become a form of self-righteousness and self-justification. Mm-hmm. How does it not become that? If faith is my faithfulness, then I'm ultimately the one that's justifying myself. Now, more recently, and, and I love the guy. He's been so helpful in so many areas. John Piper published a new book where he said that uh, faith, we also need to include affections into the definition of faith. And so now we have knowledge, assent, trust, and affections. I need to feel something inside of me for it to be true faith. It's like that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. What is the words of that line, that, that famous line? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you want to talk about my feelings many times, that's my feeling. My feeling departs and, and tries to look for salvation, security, rest, pleasure in other things but God. And if you want to talk about my feelings, that's going to lead me to condemn myself. My feelings and affections are not the hope. They wax and wane like the moon, don't they? You know, so, so one Sunday you come to church and you're, you're sort of filled with faith and affections for the Lord. And then... The following Sunday, you're feeling pretty flat. You don't have any feelings for God in your heart at all. You're cold. What do you need? Do you need someone saying to you, come on, you need more affections. That, that will give you, that, that's what your faith is. No, you need someone saying, look, this is who Christ is for you. And that then raises the affections. It's almost as if some of these people feel like the only place that you can actually experience God is at a revival camp somewhere. <laughs> then we come back yeah, from there on that much. spiritual high and we go, oh, see, God was there, but he's nowhere else. Yeah. And yeah. So, so when you're saying that affections are bad, affections are really important. But we would say that they are the consequence of faith, not within the definition of faith. And that is a key distinction. Absolutely. And we want to say, how do we get to appropriate affections? Not affections that we kind of develop within ourselves by sheer willpower. How do we get to true affections for the Lord? And it's by faith alone in his gospel, by faith alone in Christ. And on that topic of faith, where does this faith even come from? I think there's some out there that would say, well, you need to create this faith within yourself. You need to try really hard to believe this message. And to be honest with you, I find that message hopeless. We look at J.I. Packer, who wrote the historical and theological introduction to Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will. And he explains that the idea of faith alone has to be understood within the context of grace alone. The moment that you say faith comes from man, it is no longer by grace alone. Justification then falls apart. You see, in that scenario, man is laboring through the production of personal faith, and the resulting justification is his wage, no longer a free gift. So this view, which is held by Arminians, we're not saying that they're not Christians, but it's held by Arminians, is a departure into something called semi-Pelagianism, this idea that we somehow have to combine our faith with works in order to be accepted by God. J.I. Packer, he puts it boldly by saying, to rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle from relying on oneself for works. And the one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. Now, this is a big deal. Why do we say this? We're not out here just trying to divide the church and be combative and divisive. But what is happening here is a pressure 
or a work, a new law that's being put on Christians everywhere. Are you believing enough? Are you trusting enough? Do you have enough affections for the Lord? You need to create these things within yourself and you can't be assured of your salvation. You can't rest until you do these things. It's a hopeless message. Justification is outside of ourselves. The faith comes from outside of ourselves. It's a gift. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It's not just the salvation that is of grace. It is all of it. It is the faith that, that saves. It is the faith by which we are tied to Christ that is given as a gift as well. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. It is part one of a two-part series on justification. So make sure to tune in next week for the second installment. As always, thank you for listening and rest in Christ. Thank you.